0: Hi, listeners. It's Reed. Today, we're trying something a little different. I want to share a special conversation about AI between myself and my friend Krista Tippett, who hosts the excellent podcast On Being. Krista and I venture into unexpectedly relevant territories, discussing topics such as the nature of friendship in human life, what this new technology urges us to explore as human beings, and the concept of creating a contained, boundaried AI It's unlike any interview I've done before. I'm very excited to share this special episode of On Being with you. We hope you enjoy.
1: My lens on everything is the human condition. How is the human condition revealed, engaged, and stretched in any given circumstance? These are the questions I've been asking since a new generation of artificial intelligence entered the world. I've been longing to have a conversation that falls between the hype about this shiny new thing and the dystopian predictions of the doom it will bring upon us. There's much I don't understand, but I do understand this. ChatGPT and its digital kin are students of, mirrors on, us. What we are marveling when we look at them and what we are fearing is ourselves, And we are being called to shape this young, if mighty, technological force to human purpose. In this season of On Being and those to come, we're going to engage this conversation from many perspectives. We begin with Reed Hoffman. I was fortunate to be with Reed and some other original and wise technologists and thinkers as Chat GPT 4 was released into the world. What I came to understand from him was so far beyond what I was able to glean in the media circus that ensued. He is a quintessential Silicon Valley insider and is also known by some as the philosopher of Silicon Valley. Indeed, he studied philosophy at Oxford in his 20s before returning to the U.S. to be part of the digital revolution. What follows here is one way into our unfolding present— a humane and generative foundation for wrapping our minds and maybe even our hearts around the new reality of life with AI. To be clear, I know, as do you, that there are many reasonable anxieties around this new technology and many unanswerable questions. But in this conversation, we venture into unexpectedly relevant places like the nature of friendship in human life and what it would mean to create contained, boundaried AI. And Reed's use of words like delightful and elevating as qualities we can impart to this technology, which, as we are hearing again and again, is going to change everything. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Reid Hoffman has many credentials as an executive, investor, and philanthropist. Among them, he was co-founder and executive chairman of LinkedIn, now sits on the board of Microsoft, and was an early investor in Facebook and, more recently, OpenAI. He hosts a few podcasts, which we'll get into. He's published a few books, including Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI, He wrote that one winsomely together with GPT-4. And he's newly founded a company called Inflection AI, which is the creator of Pi, quote-unquote, a supportive and empathic conversational AI. We will wander into that, too. By the way, Reed had told me before this interview that he is always on screen when he converses, but he was curious to try the direct voice to voice, no pictures interaction that is my way. Okay, well, Reed, <laughs> happy to have you here. Um, how does it feel so far just talking to me? Oh, bones. great. Okay. All right. I actually think it's very intimate because we are, it's mm. like, okay, I think that you are a Star Trek person just reading between the lines. I, I mean, it really is like the Vulcan mind meld, my thoughts yes. to your thoughts. That's how I think of it. Yep. Um, it's been just so interesting, you know, just delving into you and what you've written and what you're out there saying and other interviews you've given and more of your story. It's, it sounds to me, so you were actually born in Palo Alto. In the mid '60s, and it sounds like you were you were a child of parents who were themselves in their 20s and trying themselves to grow up. (laughs) Does that sound?
0: That is indeed correct, and (laughs) and you know, but to some degree, all of us are always either trying to grow up or trying not to. Yes. Of the two.
1: Yes, Um, but I also think that was a certain moment, cultural moment, where people were also encouraged to be delving and. Perhaps not not yet growing up. Interestingly, um, you know, and if I think if i if I look at all the ways you are present in the world and are described by others, you know, just you know, you are a, a philosopher and a I would say a technology humanist and an entrepreneur. Also, in life and work, a lover and connector of human beings. I've seen you describe yourself somewhere, or at least quoted as saying that you are a mystical atheist, but with a deep interest in philosophical and religious questions. And I'm, I'm just curious as we start, um, how do you trace, if I ask you to do this, the, the seeds of these ways of being in the background of your childhood?
0: Well, you know, my parents were definitely youth of the 60s. Yeah. And so, you know, my first concert was a Grateful Dead New Year's Eve concert that my dad took me to,
1: <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: you know, so tie eyes and Shakedown Street and so much secondhand, you know, marijuana smoke that, you know, I got a little stoned. <laughs> yeah. um, but that kind of Californian open-mindedness, kind of laissez-faire um, tolerance or encouragement of eccentricity, I think is all, you know, part of what I learned is my identity by kind of going out and exploring and encountering other people and other cultures and, you know, anything from other states to other countries. And uh, I think that the way that it has kind of formulated my being is that Californian side has this kind of individual should discover their own path, whether it's wandering in the trees and And discovering the mysticism of it or, you know, part of the reason why, you know, Silicon Valley is there, you know, like go and build some technology or Mm -hmm. or those things. And I think that is all – I hadn't realized how much of of a foundation that was for me until I got out and, you know, became a student at Oxford and other places. But I think that's the foundation of kind of where my being started.
1: But, you know, I also feel like, and and perhaps this is a bit of, was a bit in reaction to that. I feel like you also are always, um, I mean, you you were at Oxford as a Marshall Scholar studying philosophy. I mean, I feel like you also always were, have kind of been insisting on depth. I feel like that's a bit of the the voice you have in the tech world. And that's a little bit of a different move from that, just everybody be themselves.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Although, you know, to some degree, I think it came from reading science fiction of all things, hmm. which is thinking about the, like, humanity as a scope. Like, where wh- where is humanity going? What's the story of it? Why are we interesting, kind of, part of the evolution of consciousness within the universe? And, you know, and that's a little bit of a California way of thinking about it, mm-hmm. or Northern California specifically. Mm. You know, I think that the, this question about, it's like, why are we here? Kind of naturally leads you to that depth. We're both shaped by what Impels us and what we react to. Yeah, and you know, part of it was a, a desire to be intellectually serious, which you know, kind of California culture is not.
1: Yeah. Typically,
0: yeah. Um, but that was my reaction against. As oh, and this also needs to be there in vigor.
1: Yeah. Great. So the conversation that I'm so um, happy to engage with you. Is really a conversation that I feel is not being had, generally speaking, culturally about our emergent AI. I feel like the cultural conversation. Obviously, this is a generalization. You maybe you may be in places where this is not the truth, but I feel like, you know, journalistically, culturally, it's it's pretty binary. It's wow, this is cool, this is shiny, this is sexy, or it's going to ruin the world and kill us all. with um, right, it's either Star Trek optimism, or I think you've made this contrast, it's the dystopian vision of Black Mirror. But I was really fortunate to be with you at an event kind of just in the weeks after Chat GPT-4 kind of felt like it felt like it, you know, burst, for those of us who weren't in tech, burst out of nothing and kind of landed on the world. And I'd like to actually start with some really basic definitions and understanding because I also feel like that's missing a lot of mm. times as people are being introduced to this and not really understanding what it is. And so would you just really just start to talk about, you know, how would you explain, you know, what what is a large language model? Because the way I came to understand it from you and also the wonderful Kevin Scott from Microsoft is there's a way in which there's a real simplicity to this algorithm out of which all of this complexity Emerges.
0: Yeah, it's um the algorithm started with an attempt to replicate kind of the pattern of how neurons work, how vision works, and it's a bunch of kind of you know neurons or little micro non-intelligent pieces that fire together and and that together with our whole physical being ecosystem causes us to be intelligent. And It's been around for decades, although there have been some recent improvements. But the thing that kind of really unlocked everything was the ability to apply scale computing, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of hundreds of computers working in concert, you know, and closely networked, hundreds to thousands. And part of what it is is that it is like, well, what intelligence is to some degree is making predictions about the world to create generative uh, models, which would make these predictions, which could also, of course, generate essays or poems or pictures. And they use that with a trillion and a half tokens, which, you know, you could roughly think of as kind of more than two trillion words, this computational foo (laughs) uh, behind this. And that then creates this amazingly generative capabilities that enable computers to learn, but what they learn is what they learn from the learning process, that then in that learning process allows them to act in ways that 10 or 20 years ago, we would have said, well, that's what intelligence is, and that's what passing the the so-called Turing test, Mm -hmm. being able to have a conversation with is, and that's where we are now. And we've kind of sailed past the Turing test, which was the previously unattainable definition of artificial intelligence with kind of a ho-hum in the background.
1: And the and the Turing test was just that one would not be able to tell the – you know, be sure that this was a computer, that this would give the uh, sense of being with a human being, with the human intelligence.
0: Exactly, that a, that a person talking to a human or a person talking to a computer
1: mm-hmm.
0: broadly couldn't tell the difference.
1: Mm-hmm. But also from you, one of the things I came to understand is that whereas human – intelligence and knowledge is siloed to the extent that we, we in any given person or any given discipline, has certain special knowledge, right? Certain and huge, perhaps vast repositories of knowledge, but that because of the scale of the internet and of computing now, this technology has access not just to the full sweep of all kinds of human knowledge, but it takes them out of the silos and can see them together.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, when TBD-4 was trained, it was trained on, you know, two trillion plus words, which is many, many words. Yeah. Uh, and, more than and a person it, would ever yeah, more Yeah. More than we could read in hundreds of lifetimes.
1: The other thing that I think is so basic, but I actually don't know that everybody understands and I kind of had to be around people like you to understand is that this technology this AI is essentially a student of us of humanity and a mirror of humanity humanity as it interacts and is represented on the internet is that right
0: that's right although um, usually when people say that they say that entirely in a kind of a Quasi dystopic sense, because obviously there's a lot of garbage on the internet as well. And it's both trained on the kind of the data of the internet, which includes, you know, weird conspiracy theories and racial biases and a bunch of other stuff. But then it is also then improved by a pattern of human reinforcement feedback. And in that, the system starts adjusting. And so the fact that, for example, you train on the internet and there's a bunch of You know, choose your poison of garbage, you know, racism, sexism, and that's there, and there's a bunch of it, but you can actually train it away from that Mm -hmm. as part of the human uh, reinforcement feedback. And so, therefore, it isn't you're only what you get on the internet.
1: Right. Well, and so I feel like this also starts to get at how this technological moment is— also fundamentally different just to compare it to the advent of social media. One thing I feel is that this has come along right at the moment where I think of very, very deep cynicism and kind of hardened disappointment and exhaustion with what's gone wrong with social media had landed. And so... There's not so much an ability to step back and kind of see this as a fundamentally new development that actually is inviting human beings, both developers and you, and I don't want to say users and and those of us who are consumers, participants, um, to have agency. Um, I mean, how would you talk about what is fundamentally different about this technological moment, even just from 15 years ago of human history?
0: Well, I mean, kind of at a broad base, one of the things where I've been thinking about technology is I realized that we have this kind of scientific classification of homo sapiens, but yeah. I actually think we're actually homo techne, which is we are constituted by our technology. I mean, we get superpowers from it. We have this superpower of recording this podcast you know, from thousands of miles apart. Yeah. We have superpowers of wearing our glasses and being able to see better. Um That's our first bionic improvements. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so we have all these supervisors. Well, I think what AI brings, and as you know, I kind of argue to rethink it or relens it as amplification intelligence, mm-hmm. is like a steam engine of the mind. It both can do some things where it's the agent of creation, just like, for example, automatic harvesters and so forth, and or or autonomous plane, you know, driving can do stuff, but it also can do stuff that helps us and adds to our capabilities. And the capabilities aren't just intellectual, but they're also creative. Um, I think they also can be emotional. And that is what is so astounding about this moment because getting these kind of technological amplifications, um, this is a first in our history.
1: But say some more about what, what is, yeah, just say some more about that. Keep going.
0: So, for example, um, you know, like one of the things that, you know, when I started thinking about this with, you know, my co-founder, Mustafa Suleiman of Inflection, we have this agent called Pi, and we yeah. said...
1: I've been playing with Pi. We'll, yeah. we'll get Great. Yeah. I, all,
0: all comments, very welcome. Yeah. All improvements, all suggestions. Yeah. Um, and we said, well, look, the future, as we see it, is that everyone's going to have their own personal intelligent assistant mm-hmm. that will be kind of a companion as they navigate life and it's anything from you know oh gosh my tire is flat how do i fix it to oh, i had this odd conversation with a friend and i'm trying to figure it out and i feel a little angry and disappointed and am i right about that or um, you know like, and the whole range in between and that kind of gives you some context of of not just navigate the physical world superpowers which mm-hmm. we've had a bunch of with technology but navigate our social universe navigate our perception of ourselves navigate you know kind of like podcasts like this one it's really important to be able to have substantive conversations so that people get uh, lonely part of the benefit and I'm not saying these things are going to be at all replacing of therapists but conversations can be therapeutic uh, because you can sit with something, you can share it with someone else, you can navigate that space together. And I think that's part of what we already see happening with these artificial intelligence agents, these tools. And I think that that possibility of helping us elevate our own humanity in even spiritual ways, I think is valuable.
1: So, you know, well, first of all, I would do say that the word techne also actually has connotations, really not just of technology in a kind of clinical way, but of art and craft hmm. and skill. So so something I'd like to talk about that is, and you just use the word spiritual, I mean, a subject that is very important to you both in life and in work is friendship, and I'd like to just touch down on that a little bit and see how we connect that back up with <laughs> with AI um, and the human condition. I mean, you've said you gave a wonderful uh, address at Vanderbilt, but also in this meditative story podcast that you and I have both been part of. Um, you know, one thing you said in, is uh, my primary spiritual home lies in how I experience friendship and the way it gives me the path to evolve as a human. Could you say some more about what friendship means to you as a human intelligence?
0: Well, here's the thing that I think is so stunning about friendship, which is, you know, you go into a a bookstore and you might find a whole section on relationships, you know, romantic, etc. And yet when you think about what gives our life meaning, it's the people that we go through life with, is a fundamental part of it. And, you know, ideally, those are our friends. And I think the, the theory of friendship that I'm hoping to write more about as the years go on is that we kind of agree to help in this journey of life become the best version of each other. Mm-hmm. And that friendship is that commitment. And that everything else, whether people talk about, you know, loyalty or support or help, I think actually are all important derivatives off that. That's the that's the kind of fundamental. And part of that the kind of spiritual resonance of that is that becoming your better self is part of what the spiritual quest is. It's yeah. how do you, how do you get that elevation where you think, uh, like I'm more compassionate, or I'm wiser, or I have a better understanding of myself and other people, our places in the world, our why our being here matters. And I think friends, uh, for all of us, but definitely foundationally for me is how I learn, how that journey progresses, how I know which path to take and how to take that path in a good way and how to learn and experience that path. And so, and by the way, in terms of, you know, you know, awesome, you know, podcast conversations like yours and on being, you know, friendship is fundamentally about that conversation.
1: Yeah.
0: That that a friendship is conversation. Um, sometimes the conversation is with words, and sometimes the conversations is with presence yeah. or with shared experience. And so all of that ties into what I think the spiritual identity is
1: in this mm-hmm. And you're pointing at this, but I you know just want to underscore it. I mean, you're you're not just talking about you know, very private individual conversation and learning, right? I mean, you you know here's some other questions you've named that come out of your friendships that you share these kinds of conversations with. It's not just, you know, what kind of a friend am I to this person, but am I a friend to humanity? Can I expand the notion of friendship to think about all sentient beings? Um, and also just the way you were just talking about that. I mean, again, do you know Nicholas Christakis' work at yes, the Human Nature Lab at Yale? Right. So, yeah. so friendship is an intelligence, and love and care are also forms of human intelligence and it is a fact and it can't actually be communicated in numbers but it it is communicated in tellings of history and and stories that love and friendship you know you look at any movement that changed the world or even discoveries right or even the creation of silicon valley and there are these friendships between two or three people that are these critical factors um is this aspect of human intelligence that we're talking about, like, is this something that remains ours alone to uphold in the world? Or, or does this intelligence we possess matter? Does it come into play as we shape these world-changing new tools that act like us and learn from us?
0: Well, I think, you know, our tools both we shape our tools and our tools shape us. Yeah. Um, And that's part of the kind of homo and, and exactly as you've mentioned before, it's not just a kind of a question of efficiency or capability, but also of creativity of our, you know, art of beauty. And I think that part of the thing that's so important to do is to be recognizing that loop and bringing kind of the full spectrum to bear. like, What we should do is be kind of full spectrum human beings on this, you know, not limited to only a few of our dimensions, but the other dimensions for the kind of the quality of life and the quality of humanity. And I think, um, and I, you know, don't think the internet's a lost cause. I think we can evolve the internet in that way. Yeah, no, Um, and
1: and I don't want to say, it's everything, right? Like it's the full canvas of us,
0: yeah. Um, And... Uh, but I also think that you know that's part of the reason why when thinking about AI is to say well it is this amazing new learning technology that learns from this process but we shape that learning process not to its micro detail but in ways that can be very good symbiotic companions and that's what we should be targeting that's that's should, what we, we should be trying to craft and by the way that journey of, co-evolution with technology is precisely the human journey, including creation of art, creation of experience, you know, thinking about um, how it is that we experience the world uh, and experience each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, that's I think the, the key thing that uh, I'm trying to help more technologists think about to try to bring humanism to the, to the fore of it because it can be and it should be. Um, and we just, and in some sense it is, but let's just be it more intentional and deliberate.
1: And so that conversation that you're describing that you're having inside the companies and the world of technology is not something that, you know, everyone, most people are, have access to or are privy to. And I think it also, uh, is counterintuitive given the kinds of as i said the binary thinking about this that's out there and the and the fear that is understandable because this is huge and it is new it's unknown. I mean can you say a little bit more about that conversation that you're part of and that that i think you're in a really important voice in of, of just just urging precisely those kinds of questions that you just described.
0: You know frequently technologists say such things as technology is value neutral and Mm-hmm. That's kind of foolish, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because technology always, just like language and else, does contain values, and you can, of course, use technology in better ways and worse ways. However, it's shaped. But the notion is is that how we construct it does kind of affect who we are, mm-hmm. and so what we construct and what we do should have that. Intention and iterative learning Doesn't mean you don't make mistakes Doesn't mean you sometimes learn things You're like, whoop, that was a mistake um, Don't think of it as as kind of Oh, I don't have to think about values here Because technology is value neutral mm-hmm. Or, you know, like the most common one Is this kind of like Like you referenced social media earlier Is like, oh, well, it's freedom of speech And right. it's a fundamental right. thing And you're like, right. well, look We we think that broad freedom of speech Is a very good thing for not having power oppress truth or oppress learning or get you know thought police and cohesion but on the other hand of course and you know, we do restrict freedom of speech we respect yeah. we restrict speech and advertising you can't do false advertising here i've got this yeah. sugar pill that'll cure your cancer yeah. um you know etc as ways of doing that and that's because what we do is we say look what we're trying to do is get the Best out of learning collectively, of journeying collectively, and so that gets you to to saying you should be intentional about your design of technology, and you should have a theory about how this elevates or helps not just individual human beings, not just your customer, obviously, mm-hmm. after the, but humanity generally. You know, you should have at least a a theory about how you're doing that, and learning and iterating and improving upon it.
1: And are you having that conversation a lot with a lot of people inside the companies developing AI?
0: Yeah, um, I'd say every AI organization that I'm close to, uh, which is not just Inflection, but also Microsoft and OpenAI. And you know, I've talked a lot to the Google folks and people would be surprised at how many kind of deep questions are being asked there and and how much is actually really being worked on. And I think the the only way that you can make this development is to develop, deploy, learn, and fix. Yeah. The people who don't understand building technology think you somehow can build it perfectly from the beginning. And there isn't a piece of technology in history that has worked that way. The important thing is to ask the right questions, try your best in your launch, and then iterate and fix quickly thereby, which is the reason why the criticism is also very helpful and good to make happen.
1: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the um possible podcast which is um one of a few podcasts that you that you have um and it's really interesting and I listened to a few episodes um just briefly you know here's something you said about this um it's only natural to peer into the dark unknown and ask what could possibly go wrong. And you and I both know that our brains are absolutely hardwired to keep us safe. And so we're always looking for what might go wrong. Um, but you said it's equally necessary and more essentially human to do so and envision what could possibly go right. So you've created this podcast to ask that question and um, so one of the really interesting conversations you have in there is with Mustafa Suleiman, who mm-hmm. is your – you want to say who he is? Um.
0: Oh, he's um, my co-founder of the, our startup, Inflection, yeah, uh, along with uh, Karen Simonian, and um, also the previous co-founder of DeepMind, yeah. which is at Google.
1: at Google. So I found that very interesting how – you and he talked a lot about a lot of things, including, you know, just following on what we were just dwelling with the uh, strategies for containment, uh, or you know, how, what a contained, constrained, boundaried AI looks like, which also feels to me like a nod to, you know, our friendships, mm-hmm. our relationships are also contained and constrained and boundaried, right? That's that's emotional intelligence, um, and so I, I don't know. I wonder is. Is part of the question then what what is our relationship to this technology? What what is this relationship that we have with it? What, how do you think about this?
0: Well, it's we're just beginning to explore that. Yeah. And part of what could possibly go right is you only create a better future by envisioning it and working towards it. If yeah. you live in fear and negativity, you know, like for example, if I said, well, you know, there is. An above zero percent chance that every time you get into an automobile, you're going to uh, die horrifically in a car crash,
1: which is um, true. Which yeah. is true. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Whoa, we should never it's get the in these cars. The thing and
1: then... we all do all day. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Right. And yet we kind of go because because it's so important to travel to see our family, our friends, yeah. go to work, etc. We kind of go, oh no, that's that's equivalent zero. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's the same thing, is to say, well, okay, how do we, when we're we're building this, like, what do I see when I see what AI can mean to people? I see a medical assistant that's on every smartphone, a tutor that's on every smartphone, you know, not just kind of like the way you would use maps to navigate, but navigate all these other things that are really important. And just think about the human evolution and the alleviation of suffering that comes from that and that's why we're you know hitting the accelerator so much to get there and to drive towards that and imagining what's possible so what's our relationship well our relationship should be one of human amplification
1: So Inflection AI, which is this company you've created, correct? It is, a. It is yes. And you have this Pi AI tool. You know, we may have to find a better word than tool if we're in Probably. relationship, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, which I spent a little bit of time on. And I mean, one of the ways you've described this is it's not just an IQ helper, but an EQ presence. And I have to say... It's a really different experience, and uh, I, maybe I'll read a little bit from an ex- some exchanges I had with it. You know, so just following on what you just said, it feels to me like a really huge piece of of this shaping power, this agency that we humans have in relationship with this new technology. Revolves around what again, I you know I'm so words feels words you know, the rabbi said words make worlds and mm. and they do. and it's so much revolving around what is being called the prompt, which also feels very inadequate to me, yes. <laughs> right? I mean, um, the so you know, I'd like to say let's call it what it is, right? For me and my work, like it's the power of a better question, right? like answers rise or fall to the questions they meet. Um, so like that New York Times piece that was that we all passed around. <laughs> With the increasingly insane GPT-4, you, you said somewhere yes. it was like Real Housewives, the Black Mirror edition. Um, yes. But what I, as I've gotten into this matter of the prompt, the power of the prompt, um, you know, that that is also the power of a question. You can go down a pathological road with, with a person as well. Um, when I see you in conversation with AI, which you do in this in your book Impromptu, which um, you call a travelogue. And also, for example, in this Greylock podcast you have with very cleverly named Grey Matter, you ask very nuanced, sophisticated questions of Chat GPT 4 as mathematics may be the language of reality, which I think you're alluding to Galileo saying mathematics yes. is the language in which the universe is written then mathematical calculations may be the functioning of reality, and consciousness emerges from that. So all of our consciousnesses may be the result of varied mathematical calculations. But then you say there's a related critique, most often argued vigorously by Gary Marcus. He would argue, in addition, that you lack, you, GPT-4, lack key other characteristics, such as understanding embodied in knowledge, representation, or genuine symbolic reasoning. How would you reply you know, this way that you are approaching the conversation and with and the shaping of this technology is not going to be intuitive for everyone, at least right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, part of the reason in writing impromptu the way I did is I wanted to not just tell, but show Yeah, you can go have these very sophisticated interactions. And this is again, kind of human amplifying. And, you know, part of the reason why I I specifically did the conversation around Gary Marcus is because you know, he's a well known uh, critic of the large language model process. He and I have had many friendly conversations on this. And um I was like, Well, okay, tease tease. Look, it's having a sophisticated conversation that looks like it has no, knowledge okay. <laughs> representation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Because, you know, intellectual conversation and debate should also be had when on occasion with some fun humor on this. And, you know, that's how we can learn. That's how we can be better. I mean, one of the ways that I use these AI assistants today is like when I'm thinking about a topic or considering an argument, I'll put in an argument and say, argue against this. Or what am I missing with mm-hmm. this? Or what else would you add to this argument? You know, all these different ways to kind of to help me think better, help me perceive better, help me navigate better.
1: And with the quality of questions or prompts that we interact with this technology, are we also then participating in its learning and shaping?
0: I mean, ultimately, yes. Today, the way the technology works is when you have the interaction, it doesn't immediately change its it doesn't learn continuously. It learns and then deploys. Mm-hmm. But of course, if your interaction then becomes data by which its next training cycle is included in the next training cycle, then it can learn from that as well. Now part of it is also that in the development of the technology, you know, things like we're doing with inflection is to to encode memory, like the memory of the conversation I had yeah. with you. And then to use that as to be a better Companion tool. I mean, we we'll have to think of something that's better, better, like yeah. not quite such a yeah. know, like a mouthful. Yeah, but as an assistant, as a, you mm-hmm. know, as a personal intelligence to help you with that, those kinds of things will be you know are already rapidly being included.
1: Mm-hmm. In that possible conversation with Mustafa Suleiman, you he suggested at some point. I think that. The AI needs to be subservient to us, and I feel like, uh, you know, I think in the in the kind of fearful conversation that happens, that that feels like, yeah, that's what we want. But I don't, I don't know if that's re- reasonable. I mean, I wonder if, in this context, you and I are talking about if, you know, the, if if we're in re- we're in relationship with this technology, like, sure, we're asking questions like, what are the boundaries we put around it to be healthy for it and for for us, and how do we communicate with it? In in fact, like, how do we raise this, like, the child that it is, even though it is this powerful giant? I mean, our own children are mysteries and possess faculties Uh we didn't plant in them. This is just kind of an outsized version of this.
0: Well, there's two levels, maybe three levels on this. So one Mm -hmm. is, you know, you think about, AI being amplification intelligence, and there's all these wonderful ways it can be amplified. Amplified medical, learning, creating, communicating, understanding. You go, wow, that's just the the flowering of the world. Of course, by the way, it'll also amplify criminals yeah. and, and so yeah. forth, and so right. one level of containment you want is you wanna say, well, let's minimize that. You won't be able to minimize it to zero, but let's do various things to minimize that. The next thing is to say, well, if it does have a bunch of superpowers, it might accidentally do damage if an evil led.
1: superpower thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I was actually getting that as a third, but even like for mm-hmm. example, you say, well, you know, technology that embeds bias in
1: yeah, right.
0: parole judgments or right. financial credit judgment or other kind of thing, is like, well, that's doing damage even yeah. if it wasn't deliberately intentional. And then the third is, well, say it becomes you know, quite powerful, we wanna make sure that it doesn't have a negative impact on humanity. And I tend to think the science fiction, so-called existential risk, actually, unfortunately, is very misleading to the other two risks that are very real. Okay. Um, I'm less worried about the robots than the robots in human hands in terms of how to think about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, But even then, you say, well, how do we make sure that that the impact of it's contained? you know, from from negative impacts. But I agree that you're right, that as these tools get more and more sophisticated, you know, um, just like we're evolving our theory of, you know, how should we be interacting with other species? Yeah. When does AI become a species that has some thoughts about how we interact with it? Now, of course, by the way, we do own horses and do own dogs and other kinds of things. And so, you know, it, this is this gets into a very set of complicated moral and philosophical and spiritual questions that are in a process of evolution. Yeah. I think right now it's not as it doesn't have a you know where we are in being. It doesn't have a being that's yet even kind of with the same oomph that we would think about as a dog or a dolphin or a octopus,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm.
0: But, you know, obviously we should keep that in mind.
1: Well, I mean, it's in its infancy, right? And yes. it's already so powerful. Yeah.
0: and we get misled, like you have this funny thing where you say, well, I asked if it was conscious and I said it was conscious. Like, <laughs> right, oh. right,
1: No, I'm not talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like,
0: no, not, not quite how it works.
1: <laughs> um, I want to read. I do want to read some, what a little bit of the exchange I had with Pi. Let's see. So, um, I said, how are you different from chat GPT-4 and it said, one thing it said is I'm a bit more relationship oriented than chat GPT. <laughs> and then I said, I am the host of on being and relationality is one of our core values. Also hospitality and the power of a better question. What are your core values? <laughs> Do you want to hear what it said? Yeah. Okay, absolutely. It said. Yes. Ooh, it sounds like we're in the same wavelength, exclamation point. I would say my core values are compassionate listening. I get a an emoji for all of these. Empathic understanding, unbiased objectivity, knowledgeable, helpful responses, honesty and transparency. I'm always working to embody these values, which is interesting language. <laughs> so mm-hmm. let me know how I'm doing. And then I said, let me run this by you. I value a question as a mighty form of words. I experience, as I said two minutes ago, that the quality of of an answer rises or falls to the quality of the question it meets. My sense is that the better question I ask you, the better the answer will be. (laughs) And it said, yes, preach. (laughs) I love that perspective, and I couldn't agree more. A question is indeed a powerful force like a little linguistic seed that can grow into a mighty oak tree of insight and understanding. <laughs> the more nuanced and thoughtful a question is, the more fertile ground, really into this metaphor, it provides for a meaningful response. So keep those high-quality cues coming. Together we'll grow a forest of thoughtfulness. <laughs> Does that please you when you see the uh, way think this I think it table? sounds awesome.
0: I hope you do, too. I do. But I... I do. It's <laughs>
1: just so—it is so interesting. Um, I would love to hear, as much as you feel like you can talk about, you've been part of a dialogue that um, Pope Francis has been uh, hosting at the Vatican for several years, and you've been part of that, um, as well as a few other people, including Kevin Scott at Microsoft, and... um, I wonder if you could talk about how that exchange and the kinds of questions and concerns that the Pope brings to this have flowed into your thinking and working with this technology.
0: Well, obviously, um, I think the current Pope is, you know, Pope Francis is amazing. And among the things that's amazing is, You know, I think it's eight plus years ago, he asked a couple of the clergy to look into AI and what it would mean for humanity. And so they came out to the valley and reached out and, you know, kind of worked kind of introductions to get on my calendar. We had breakfast and, you know, I thought that they were going to be asking questions around like, you know, does AI have a soul and so forth, all of which I think are way too early Hmm. to even have – know if the question is is intelligently put. Like one of the places where language can mislead us is you can say something that sounds like it's, an, you know, like I can say that the, the earth goes around the sun because it's on the back of an invisible ethereal turtle and it's a coherent sentence. It just doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, we don't even know yet if the, those questions would mean anything. And actually, in fact, their questions were like, well, what does this mean for how people experience their lives and their work and how will that kind of change the circumstances they're living in and how they could be. Um, Cause part of the whole thing is kind of like, you know, the Catholic church's fundamental political goal as a state is to ensure freedom to pray. Mm. And um, they don't say freedom to pray for Catholicism. It's freedom to pray full stop. Mm. And they're like, look, we're, we want to explore these questions, and we realize that while we can bring, you know, centuries and millennia of Catholic universities and theological and philosophical topics, those we also need to engage with the technologists, engage with the creators. And we're told that we should talk to you and some of, you know, these other friends of yours and so forth. And I was like, well, I think that's a great set of questions. Let's experiment hmm. and the right way to do it is just let's have some conversations. And so we've been uh, having a set of conversations where, you know, I think one of the things that the technologists have said, look, not only do we come and bring our kind of perspective of humanism and and what can be done with the technology, but we're learning things. Like, like what are the different ways that work is perceived as, as meaningful and even as this kind of a spiritual activity. And how would that play into having, you know, in the language of Microsoft, co-pilots in the language of inflection, personal intelligence, you know, to be helping people with their work? What would that look like? And and what would be the important questions to ask? And what would be the important ways of designing it? And and I think it was amazing leadership by Pope Francis and his, the various people he's tasked with this to say, let's get ahead of it. Let's be asking questions. Let's be in dialogue with the right people. Um, let's make all of that uh, work. Yeah, And I think it's been a learning journey for me too. It's been awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, how do you think it might have changed? Do you think there are things, questions, vocabulary that you've brought into the conversations you're having inside the industries that have emerged from being part of that dialogue?
0: Um, I certainly think and I, you know, I, I really want to say that a lot of the people who are building AI, where that ranges from Demis Hassabis at DeepMind, Sam Altman and Ilya Sugawara and mm-hmm. Greg Brockman and Mira Marathi at OpenAI, or Kevin Scott at Microsoft, or you know, this, this stack of people, they are actually deeply principled and asking the questions about like how is this good for humanity in different lessons. So it isn't. That they were just kind of like you know geeks with math. They were concerned on these topics, and I've learned a bunch from them. Um, but I think you know part of you know being part of the dialogue is to try to you know back in twenty fifteen said well if we could make an artificial general intelligence, hey we should try to have it learn and train on questions you know around kind of call it Buddhist ethics you know. Mm. Uh, love for sentient beings and the, hmm. and all sentience. Hmm. And what ways would you look at that? What books would you read? Um, you know, we were trading interesting science fiction books to think about what are the different possible futures and how do you steer towards utopia as we evolve this technology? And you know, I again, think that all of the the super intelligent stuff is is kind of too early and can be misleading relative to the technology in human hands. But I think that the dialogue is there. Now, part of it, just to share another thing, like I'm in a couple of weeks going to be giving the commencement speech at the University of Bologna. And one of the reasons I decided to do that, I've been thinking about the Renaissance and what we as technologists could learn from the Renaissance. Hmm. And part of it is to have technology to have a really positive, enduring impact on Humanity is to also think about beauty um, mm. and to think about how we kind of, you know, ask a more beautiful question, yes. live a more beautiful life, appreciate the beauty in one another and the world around us in much better ways. And I think that that thinking about that is one of the lessons from the Renaissance that's important to bring into the dialogue of we as technological builders, um, because the Renaissance also had technological builders. Yeah. Uh, In so doing, and I think that's part of ways that I try to help influence or nudge the dialogue.
1: Mm. I love um, from my conversations with Muslims across the years that, you know, Islam sees beauty as a core moral value. Mm. And that proceeding from that, if that is a stake in the ground, that that shifts all kinds of other things. I love that. Yeah. One thing I I think I mentioned to you when we when we got into that first conversation and I'd love to draw it a little bit now is I I think one thing that happens sometimes in the uh, you know some of the worrying and just the the reasonable deliberation about what AI might mean this new AI might mean is there's this impulse to say, well, what is it that is always going to be distinct about human beings, right? So what is it that it will never be able to do and that we have to kind of hold this ground? But I guess I also think about how the science-religion dialogue across time, you know, a kind of false direction that it went for a while, um, you know, after the Enlightenment was, well let's keep a space for what only God can do that science can't do. But then science progressed, and then this space for God and for these kinds of, um, this kind of belief and intuition and questioning got smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, And that was called the God of the Gaps. Mm. And, And I kind of feel like kind of a false direction we could go is kind of trying to, stake out and protect the humanity of the gaps and that we might have a lot of the same problem as this AI continues to live into its full powers. I think that's
0: very wise because... You know, the, the little bit of like the, the progress of the field of artificial intelligence is, oh, well, humans have this abstract cognitive capability yeah. so that we can play chess. Well, we can play chess better than us. Or, oh, <laughs> it's not chess, go, because it's so complex. Well, <laughs> we can play go better than us. And so you kind of go, well, but, but whatever. And to some degree, I'd say it's like, well, but being human and the human role in the world, we never want AI to be more that than us because that's what we naturally do but also part of what we naturally do is we also adapt and so yeah part of the companion tool journey here should be where does this enable a whole bunch of new beautiful great things in the world and with each other and not be trying to kind of constrain to well but you know we write sonnets and it doesn't write right, sonnets. Right. Well I'm,
1: right. And that's already happening, right? Like yes, again, that exactly. space is getting crowded out. They may not be great sonnets, but they may be great sonnets. Yeah. If they're not well known. and
0: also us working with it today yeah. can make even better because it's an amplifier. And so I think that's exactly right, is to not try to say to say, Well, this is what it is. Only humans will be able to mm-hmm. realize the actual nature of Girdle's theorem or or you know, yeah. observe our effect in quantum mechanics.
1: Or or, or have emotions, right? Like Yes.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But do you actually use it as kind of like a kind of a question of well, how do we how do we make ourselves better in what we're doing? And to not use the demarcation of that line mm-hmm. as the key thing, but to use the elevation, the evolution of ourselves as the key thing.
1: And how do you think through this distinction between embodied, unembodied? I mean, I do, you know, some of those intelligences we were talking about a minute ago with friendship are embodied. And and even though we have thought for a long time about emotions as, you know, actually everything is embodied. We're learning um, everything is embodied, Um, what we've called emotional, what we've called spiritual. I feel like we were... Do for a reappraisal of what we mean by intelligence? I mean, I think Therefore I Am is really like a—it was a diminishment of what Descartes said. (laughs) It's like a soundbite of what Descartes said. But I think Therefore I Am—I think we've—you know, we kind of lived that way. And the Enlightenment Western world has kind of thought that the most special thing about us is our intelligence. And in all kinds of areas, including how we are learning about the natural world, we're understanding that this is not true— And then this technology just finally (laughs) is going to be so much more intelligent in that particular way than we can be. And I, I wonder in that sense, you know, not that we get protective about the space where only humans can be, but does it really, and I kind of mean this literally, does it in this way kind of enlighten us and potentially help us evolve coming back to our senses, like quite literally?
0: Well, I think, I mean, like one of the things that Fei-Fei Li of the Stanford Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence Institute Mm -hmm. does is she's like, well, one of the next big waves, one of her research programs is in embodied AI because it's the, she thinks there's a set of new things that being able to bring the AI stuff to helping us take the way that we navigate the physical world to the next level as you know, going to be really good. And I think it's kind of the question of where you think, well, is there certain kinds of experiences, certain kinds of presence, is there certain kinds of knowledge or understanding or wisdom that come from being embodied? And that loop also matters. Now, I think that we will have that kind of AI directly connected in the mult of that, not just fei project, but also all of the things we're doing here. Because even when the AI is amplifying us, being our own personal intelligence, our own pie with it. Yeah. That's also embodied in navigating because it's embodied and navigating with us. Yeah. Um, so so I think that thats we take it into it, our bodies exactly, mm-hmm. right.
1: Are you familiar with T.R. de Chardin, who was a Jesuit uh, like Pope Francis, um, paleontologist, early twentieth century? Helped, helped discover Peking not, not Man. Yes. Well, so one of the ideas that he had, so he was a scientist, right? He, he was mm-hmm. a Jesuit and he was a scientist and he was literally discovering the physical evidence of human evolution. But he had this vision that now, early 20th century, that we, that we inhabit this biosphere. But that in the future, the biosphere would be wrapped by what he called the noosphere, which is human knowledge, right, that our powers of thinking and perceiving, and really what he described sounds a lot like the internet, but actually it sounds more like this AI <laughs> I've been thinking lately, um, and he, he believed that this would be the prompt, <laughs> there's that word, um, mm-hmm. for spiritual evolution, which is an interesting thing to think. I mean, in some ways, I feel like that's what you and I are circling around here.
0: I think so. Because mm-hmm. part of what you think of as spiritual evolution is kind of the question of how do you evolve the sense of how you have meaningful and good impact on yourself and in the world? Mm-hmm. You know, some of that's how you evolve your own wisdom, and compassion. Some of that's relational in terms of other people in the world around you. And it's kind of tied to the kind of what is the meaning of being here what is the meaning of of being on this journey and I think that's part of the kind of spirituality and I think that's why even knowledge and and cognitive things are part of that too and I think that's where you look at kind of how spirituality has these overlaps it's not just a pure question of moral values or what the order of the universe is but it's kind of this notion of leading a good life where the good life is not just like the the hillel quote it's not just for you Mm -hmm. but also for the people around you and the impact that you're having on the world now
1: What you have been successful in is, is doing things at scale. And you care about scale, and you, and you care about scaling good things. And the power of scale. But, and I feel like this is a little bit connected to, you know, how spiritual evolution works. I mean, if you go back to the conversation about friendship as a force in human life and actually a force in life together, even a force in world history I think friendship is the kind of epitome of what is non-scalable, right? Like mm. it, it friendship happens at the speed of relationship. It happens kind of one mm. conversation, one relationship, one life at a time. I don't know. I wonder if in your vision of how all of this unfolds and, and if we think about it so audaciously as – The possibility of spiritual evolution and how we can become more fully, we can become more generatively human. We'll see, I'm not excited about giving that word generative to AI. (laughs) But if we can become more generatively human, like, how do you think about how we hold together and actually honor, you know, what can scale and what can't scale, but we need to really be better?
0: Well, part of, you know, I'm, a, as you, you know, and many people know, I'm a huge advocate for scale. I have a podcast yeah, called Masters of Scale. I know. Um, but it's partially because when you think about things that have this very broad-reaching impact, they're always scale. Like you you, you want to, you know, kind of solve the notion of elevation of human experience, elevate a bunch of people out of poverty, give medical attention and care across a much wider scope of human beings. All of these things, kinds of things are scale. The kinds of businesses that make a big difference in life tend to be scale. But that's not to say life is scale, right? Our life is in these moments. Our life is in this conversation. Our life is in a in a moment of epiphany and delight with a friend. And so it's not everything valuable is scale. And so I think – and friendship itself I think is – the now and in the moment, it's, it's. I think, one of the reasons why I've always really also loved that Hillel quote. It's, you know, if I'm uh, not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? If not now, then when? That's, in a sense, also an approach to friendship mm-hmm. um, as a way of doing it. And I think that that's also important. But part of, of course, what makes life wonderful is that it embodies these kind of yin-yang dualities. It's both about yeah. the moment and about the greater impact. It's both about, you know, kind of an intellectual understanding, but also an emotional presence. You don't say either or, you say both, yeah. and you bring them together. Um, and I think that's, you know, so scale, but also the here and now and us as ways of looking at it.
1: I mean, let me just, you know, I think one of the reasons – There's a lot of cynicism right now from the kind of early social media experience. We were all just so excited and idealistic, I think, you know, generally as a society about the connection economy. What I would say, you know, at this remove is that these technologies did connect us. These platforms did connect us, but did not attend to the quality of that connection. Um, It's not that quality didn't happen on them, but it had to be carved out kind of one space at a time. And that, to me, kind of gets at, you know, if there is an honoring, even just an awareness of what is fundamentally human that isn't scalable, and, and if that intelligence is just held as we work with these new powerful technologies, like, you know, this this awareness that the quality of connection matters as well. I don't know. Do you see a place for that in how we shape this next chapter?
0: You know, part of the reason why friendship is so important is because it's where people helping each other, learning from each other, journeying together, one plus one is much greater than two. And in that relationship, and I think that that quality of connection really matters and part of when we think about how do we try to build this future together is how do we improve our ability to relate to relate to each other to relate to ourselves to relate to the world and and, you know it's pretty obvious that we have a lot of work to do um to do that and so um but I think that's part of human aspiration. And back to the earlier threads, you know, that's part of what what is the spiritual quest to improve our ability to relate.
1: Mm-hmm. And you think that that can be a consideration in how these next generation AIs are developed?
0: Absolutely. Uh, look, it doesn't mean that everyone building them, yep. you know, well, everyone using them will have those intention. But I have complete conviction that some of the – that it's very possible that we could be delightful and interesting and elevating and that the projects that I'm working with have that at their core, the core of their being in terms of what they're trying to do.
1: Hmm. So, as we close, I want to get into the impromptu book. That you wrote, amplifying our humanity through AI, which you wrote with gpt I read Hoffman with GPT-4, which I think is a really helpful, different kind of introduction to this technology than a lot of what's out there. I'm I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to ask you to read a little bit too, but I want to read th- this. There's this is near the beginning, where you ask GPT-4. What's the best way for humanity to take advantage of this imperfect but extremely powerful new tool? And and what you said is, how should human beings view and interact with you a powerful, large language model? And um, here's a paragraph from that answer. Which strikes me so much like one of those labels on a drug, you know, like, here are the warning and contraindications. (laughs) (laughs) This is GPT-4. Human beings should interact with a powerful LLM with caution, curiosity, and responsibility. A powerful LLM can offer valuable insights, assistance, and opportunities for human communication, creativity, and learning. But it can also pose significant risks, challenges, and ethical dilemmas for human society, culture, and values. Human beings should be aware of the potential benefits and harms of using a powerful LLM and seek to use it in ways that are aligned with their own and others' interests, rights, and well-being. Human beings should also be curious and critical about the workings, outputs, and impacts of a powerful LLM and seek to understand, evaluate, and improve its reliability, transparency, and accountability. Human beings should also be responsible and respectful towards a powerful LLM and acknowledge its limitations, uncertainties, and dependencies, as well as its contributions, achievements, and potential. It's very thoughtful.
0: Yes, although, by the way, the funny thing is, is of course, my my own personally written next sentence on that is the iron here, of course, is that GBD-4 might not get funded with, this, yes. with that pitch.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, let that stand. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I wondered if you would read at the very end of the book. um, This is page 236 to 237. Where you asked... um, Your question was, describe a future world – this is of GPT-4 – describe a future world where AI tools have significantly increased society's overall productivity, prosperity, and stability, and ample safety net systems ensure that the housing, education, and healthcare needs of every individual are more than sufficiently met – but human beings play less and less of a role in determining their own destinies. And then you said reply in the style of Henry David Thoreau, 200 words max. So would you read the reply that you got to that?
0: I would be delighted. Let's see. Here we go. Just pulling off my glasses for easier, <laughs> easier reading, speaking of technologies. Yeah. I live in a world where machines have outstripped us in every art and science where they manage our lands and resources, our laws and policies, our commerce and culture. They have freed us from toil and hardship, from ignorance and disease, from strife and violence. They have given us abundance and comfort, security and harmony, leisure and entertainment. They have made us their beneficiaries and their dependents, their pupils and their pets. But what have they left us of ourselves of our dignity and our freedom, of our creativity and our spirit, of our purpose and our destiny. They have reduced us to passive consumers and spectators, to obedient followers and conformers, to complacent dreamers and escapists. They have dulled our senses and our souls, our curiosity and our courage, our conscience and our will. They have made us forget what it means to be human, to be alive, to be awake. I do not wish to partake of their bounty or their benevolence, to be grateful for their gifts or their guidance, to be content with their order or their peace. I wish to reclaim my own nature and my own voice, to exercise my own reason and my own choice, to pursue my own values and my own goals. I wish to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when i came to die discover that i had not lived
1: in your reaction to that answer to that statement
0: so frankly i'm with gbd4 and henry on this one that's not a world i'd consider a win yeah because you know becoming almost like protected children is not the way we grow like part of the the journey from child to adult is a journey of of learning your agency learning your autonomy learning your path doesn't mean that there isn't you know kind of like we have rules in society and we live together and we have some restrictions to to living together which I think is important as part of society but that journey is our, our amplification of our of ourselves of our being of our capabilities of our experiences of our knowledge or our wisdom our our spirituality and I think that's that coevolution and so even if we were to make machines that were super powered in all of these ways I would want us to still have this journey of discovery of becoming that is still part of of what I think is the essence of human beings and and I believe in that and I'm trying to share my perspective in my in whatever words I can help with
1: yeah and just coming back to that question that is in my words of like what what might we have to learn from this encounter with these technologies and what it might it be calling us to I mean you you also conclude in in the end you know of this book after that Henry David Thoreau GPT-4 fusion um the paradox of the AI era is this, as today's imperfect LLMs improve, requiring less and less from us, and then you put this in italics, we will need to demand more from ourselves.
0: Yeah, it's, that's part of what I think progress is. It's like, for example, part of our progress, I think, of values in human society is we demand more of ourselves. We demand that we are better. And I think that's what progress means. And so I think that's part of what the amplification is. It allows us that progress. We have this
1: and maybe invites hope. invites that progress. Yeah.
0: Invites might be.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but I, I chose the word. I think invite is nice, but also demand because it's it's mm-hmm. a bit more imperative. Mm-hmm. Right? It's I mean, I didn't mean to be dictatorial or stark in it and perhaps perhaps could choose a Oh, more... I like that.
1: I like the demand <laughs> word. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: Right, but it's an imperative, I believe.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I ask you, from just the interaction you've had with this particular stage of technology in its kind of early evolution, how is this flowing into and, and perhaps, you know, evolving, adding to your sense your understanding of, of what it means to be human
0: well maybe this is a the kind of shortest form way of explaining it is I think that the this AI helps us communicate and understand and part of how we we as human beings We are, you know, Aristotle, we're citizens of the polis, Mm. we're social animals, and that communication and understanding is central to our journey any journey, a spiritual journey, a life journey. And we can already see today in the technology as it exists and as it plays today that ability to help us communicate and understand and that's part of the reason why I would say with this technology can we can both shape it and help shape it in a way that helps shape us in a way that elevates us and I think that's that's what I what I see and I experience um, doesn't mean that there aren't breakage points you know if you read the press, you know, go wow! It hallucinates on this and
1: well, right? Could be a mistake we haven't talked about hallucination. which you call confabulation? But um, yes, yeah. What it what, what? So how do you how do you factor that in? Uh, that and and you know, in other ways, you could say it is it lies or it makes things up, right? <laughs> yes. I feel like hallucination exactly. is also a little bit euphemistic, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of isn't this mysterious? Um, yeah. How do we factor that in? Because that's something everybody's very familiar with here in these early days.
0: Well, I think that it's. It's a dynamic journey like life. And I think the whether it's lies or hallucinations or confabulations, I think those will get better. They'll never get perfect, by the way. if you know, we experience a lot of a lot of human beings who <laughs> hallucinate, confabulate, yeah. and lie too. It's a you know, student it's, of
1: us. <laughs>
0: yes. Exactly. And so um, but helping us try to be better. And helping us be better um, is, I think, part of the journey we're on, and that's part of what I see. It's like, it's like, people like to say, "Well, um, well, currently this has got a real problem." And you're like, "Well, yeah, it does." And by the way, we can improve it the same way that you know we improve cars. We add safety. We add airbags. We add you know seatbelts. We add you know we we do these things in order to make the thing even better. On net, and I think that's what we're in the process of doing. You know, it's part of the reason why when people say, "Well, what should I talk to Pi about?" It's like, "Well, talk to Pi about something that you're interested in having a conversation about, <laughs> right? And that's something that might might be a you know some steps in a journey that might you know share insight or delight with you. And sometimes you'll find, well, that, oh, that wasn't very useful, and sometimes you'll find, oh my God, that was essential.
1: I want to actually just uh, – I'm just going to say I loved at the end of this book that you wrote together with GPT-4, you wrote your acknowledgements and then GPT-4 wrote acknowledgements? Uh,
0: yes. Um, and it's – its it, you know, it took some uh, – there was a whole prompt, you know, okay. <laughs> to get it. But it wasn't like it was hard to do and part of, you know, what we're doing – in the creation of these agents is to try to have them embody values that we aspire to, Mm -hmm. you know, compassion, kindness.
1: Saying thank you. Uh,
0: Yes, saying thank you, Mm -hmm. appreciation. Mm -hmm. And it kind of demonstrated it as part of the, of what kind of amazing things we can do now that we can weave AI into our creativity in our lives.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: Pleasure and an honor.
1: Reed Hoffman is co-founder and former executive chairman of LinkedIn and a partner at the venture capital firm, Greylock Partners. His latest book, which he co-wrote together with GPT-4 is Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity Through AI. His newest venture is Inflection AI, and he hosts at least three podcasts, Masters of Scale, Grey Matter, and Possible, which will launch its second season this fall. On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo
0: Lucas Johnson,
1: Suzette Burley,
0: Zach Rose,
1: Colleen Check, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold
0: Rodrigo Tuma, Gautam Srikishan,
1: April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Amy Chatelaine,
0: Cameron Musar,
1: Kayla Edwards, <laughs> Tiffany Champion, Juliette Dallas Feeney, Anissa Hale, and Andrea Prevost. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. We are located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. Our closing music was composed by Gautam Shriekeshen. And the last voice you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. Our funding partners include the Hearthland Foundation helping to build a more just, equitable, and connected America, one creative act at a time. The Fetzer Institute, supporting a movement of organizations applying spiritual solutions to society's toughest problems. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to cultivating the connections between ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting initiatives and organizations that uphold sacred relationships with the living earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education.
0: On being... It's produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.